I love about the Christian story and Christian teaching is that weakness and vulnerability has such an important role to play. I love that. I really love it that with some brokenness, you know, there's nothing more powerful than a broken heart, you know, what that could lead to. And to to have a soft heart and a supple, supple heart is a good thing. Uh, I really like that, that with invulnerability, you know, my power is made stronger in your weakness. I felt that. Hey, you're here with Andrew Kleger and Jared McKenna on the Paris on Podcast, where we explore contemplative peacemaking or the sometimes neglected but very important connection between inner transformation and outer peacemaking, nonviolence, and activism. In this episode, we're joined by the activist, author, speaker, and self-described pilgrim and storyteller, Donna Mulhern, who speaks about how her attentiveness to the inner life sustains her outer peacework, activism, and involvement in development projects, especially in Iraq. This is an important, ongoing conversation that peacemakers around the world will want to join in on, and we're thrilled to have you here with us. Donna, I'll confess that um, when we were talking about guests, um, you came up for me as one of the first people we want on the podcast and I know for a lot of people uh, you're known particularly if uh, you're in Australia or um, in the Middle East, Eastern Europe and been paying attention in the last decade or so Uh, and I have a deep appreciation for you and I think part of that for me Donna is I've known a number of different Donna Malkins Um, and there's there's a consistency and an integrity there but you keep getting more and more Donna um which I think is incredible. Uh, a lot of people, your book, uh, Ordinary Courage, and your journey from Donna the Human Shield, or prior to that, even your journey like as a journalist, um, or Donna who's worked on issues to do with um, uh, Palestine, Israel, and uh, the reality of uh, Gaza, or um, Donna Pine Gap and... Um, or Donna, Love Makes a Way, or um, where would you start this journey for you of glory to glory when we talk about Donna Malhoun and the peacemaker that you are? Oh, I love this question because um, the, um, the beginning for me goes right back to a little monastery in a small town in the south of Ireland. Um, in a, a town called Cove, and there was a Benedictine monastery there of eight old enclosed contemplative nuns, and they opened up the place to guests um, to come for retreat. And I ended up there, uh, so long before Baghdad, before Pine Gap, before all of that, uh, something happened in that place that I really believe was the beginning of the story. A lot of people know me from my human shield experience and uh, they often think, oh, the story began physically when I heard the call to go and then within two weeks I was there and so the story began. But every now and then um, when I'm sharing about that experience or something, someone might put up their hand and say, but where were you at in your life or how could it be that you were able to go and be ready to go quickly? And that's why I said I love that question because... That brings me to the inner journey. 
So everything else you've talked about, that's the physical journey of my activism, but the inner journey I find just as exciting, if not more so. And that journey began in that little monastery where I believe uh, I call my transformation. And it's where I started life as a contemplative. I started, uh, began, I discovered um, the, the tradition of meditation in the Christian tradition and I began uh, to do that. So the, the prayer of silence and stillness, what I love to call the prayer of the heart. Mm. And so when I began to do that and began to see everything differently, began to connect with that divinity, the spark of the divine within me, um, everything changes. Nothing really mm. can be the same. You see things differently. And inevitably that uh, led me, as I think it does for many people, to uh, nonviolence and, yeah. and thus it unfolded from there. And if, if we were to talk about the Donna that walked into that monastery, um, because uh, I, I know the, the Donna that uh, many people encounter if they come and hear you teach on contemplative prayer or the, the prayer of the heart, um, or if they come and hear you speak about depleted uranium uh, or the reality of um, uh, what you saw of uh, war in Baghdad firsthand, um, they might not realise just how how far you have come this journey of. So, how would you describe the Donna who walked into that monastery um, in Ireland? I was a typical Gen X. Um, <laughs> and how old were you at that stage? I was twenty-eight, late twenties, uh -huh. twenty-eight. Yeah, I was typical Gen X, uh, busy doing a lot, um, very focused on um, what I was achieving uh, each day. And I was just traveling and I was a backpacker and I was traveling around. But even then, I still had a list of things I was ticking off to do each day. You know, <laughs> I have to, if I'm sightseeing, I have to do good sight, very thorough sightseeing. And I was also doing volunteer work along the way because why? Well, that's what you do. You're always doing something. You're always needing to be productive. What are your key performance indicators? What did you achieve today? I'd grown up with this. Um, and so, yeah, a typical busy Gen X um, girl. Um, I'd taken time away from home to travel. and uh, But even my travelling was busy and frenetic until yeah. one point. And that point was when I uh, ended up in Paris at the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And I, I went into that cathedral which was um, significant for me because um, it wasn't a place I'd normally go. And I stood in front of this big cross, um, big wooden cross, and there was a thousand candles underneath and the smoke was uh, going up. It was dim and it was the, the atmosphere was electric. And I stood in front of that um, cross and lit a candle and um, with tears streaming down my face, I prayed what I call um, my prayer of Notre Dame. And that was, I was seeking a new spirituality. I was seeking something more authentic and more deeper than what I'd known before. And the reason I was in that very vulnerable place praying that prayer was because about a year prior, I'd gone through an experience where I had ended up in quite a raw, broken, vulnerable place. And I wish that upon nobody, but for me, it was the beginning of something new and amazing. 
So that year before I'd gone from basically in the space of a weekend, somebody who knew the answer to everything, I knew, everything was very organized and orderly in my mind about what was true and what was not, what was this and in, in, in terms of theology and everything. I'd gone from that on a Friday to on the Sunday, not knowing anything, mm. not knowing what was true anymore or not knowing um, what was right, what was wrong. And, and I threw, I, I was in a position of that brokenness because of something that had happened where I threw all those certainties up in the air and I didn't have those answers anymore. I only had questions, but it felt strangely liberating. And I yeah. felt like God was there saying, finally, I've got something to work with. <laughs> so yeah. wow. it, was in, it was in this um, spirit of then openness after probably um, uh, 15 years of quite a rigid um, evangelical judgmental theology to this place of openness that I ended up in Notre Dame and then over to Ireland. And so but after I prayed that prayer in Notre Dame, I wrote it down in my journal. I look at it often. I went and sat down in the pew in Notre Dame Cathedral and I sat there and I sat in silence and a couple of hours passed and the, the place was starting to pack up and people were being ushered out. And I'd realised that I'd just sat there for a few hours not doing anything. And I, I don't recall that I'd ever done that before ever in my life. You know, there was no purpose to it. I, I wasn't doing anything in particular. I just sat there. But I, it felt beautiful and amazing. So the next day I sought out another cathedral and I sat in that one. And then the next day I sat in, I was on a cathedral crawl <laughs> and I didn't quite know what was happening and I hadn't done it before, but it just felt like the right thing to do. And, and like my backpacker friends were kind of teasing me at the end. So they'd done, you know, four art galleries and all of these great things in Paris and, you know, what did, what did you do today? Another cathedral? And I was like, well, yes, I did another three cathedrals today. You know. But um, uh, you, you currently um, identify as Catholic um, and you still attend the Society of Friends? You're still attending quite as well? Yeah, so I identify very much culturally as Catholic and in many ways, but I also attend a Quaker meeting here in the Blue Mountains and so I call myself a Quackalic. <laughs> and I've heard you um, uh, refer to yourself as a, f a former fundamentalist and so this Notre Dame experience, this experience from knowing to entering the unknowing, um, I'm also aware that I've heard you previously say it wasn't merely um, in terms of religious fundamentalism but also um, uh, political fundamentalism as well that the I've heard you talk about the kind of tribal identity. Some people might not be aware of your background as a journalist, but also someone who has been involved in uh, party politics. Um, before Andrew um, uh, asked you the next question, would you sketch a little bit around how being there in Notre Dame wasn't merely about um, the black and white of uh, how you saw religion, but the black and white of how you saw um, uh, political engagement as well? Yeah, so from uh, a young age, I had good reason to be interested in um, in politics and the political system because of the situation of my childhood. Um, so 
I was raised not as some people would say working class, I was actually welfare class because we never at any point had a worker in our household, uh, any yeah. income. My mother um, was widowed at 35 and she had four children under 12 and I was raised on a widow's pension mm-hmm. and um, I didn't receive any full-time income until the age of 21. And so when you've, you're sitting down watching the budget um, broadcast on TV with your mother beside you at the age of 10 and she's crossing her fingers that the widow's yeah. pension will be maintained, you have a deep interest in politics. That's and right. it, was, it was really real for me. Um, we needed that support to continue. And my mum had to explain to me, you know, I remember one day um, in the late 70s when those Gough Whitlam was um, campaigning in, in one of those elections and I said to my mum, oh, Mummy, who, who are you going to vote for, um, Mr Whitlam or the other man? I didn't even remember his name, the other man. But she said, oh, Donna, come, come here. She sat me on her knee. She said, there's something I need to explain to you. She said, um, uh, I'm a pensioner. And I said, what does that mean? She said, it means we get our money from the government. And she said, if Mr Whitlam stays in, everything will be okay. If the other man gets in, she said, I just don't know what's going to happen. So to hear those words at the age of 10, I shook my little fist and thought, if it's the last thing I do in my life, it's to keep Mr Whitlam in and the other guy out. So, of course, at the early stage I could, I joined the Labor Party and uh, young Labor and um, was very active politically. Um, from a very young age. I remember when I was in year 10 and I'd go to my girlfriend's house and start have posters of Boy George and Duran Duran on their bedroom walls. I had a poster of Bob Hawke on my bedroom walls. So it was a bit bizarre, but I, I had this very keen interest, obviously, in, um, in making sure girl, children like me were cared for. And so I, I was deeply involved and went to every branch meeting, every every way I could be involved. And I was elected onto a local government council uh, in my local area. I think I was 26 then, and I was being prepared for pre-selection into New South Wales Parliament. But it was around that same time that my life was changing and that things were changing because up until that point, I was very happy to have these adversaries on the other side who were those other people who maybe didn't have my best interests at heart. I was quite happy with that line of division and I was guarding my side very strongly. And I was quite, had a quite a sharp tongue and I was quite able to, you know, dismantle <laughs> their arguments as well and was very much applauded and rewarded for that. But later on, as I, as I was, you know, going deeper into my contemplative spirituality, it was like I realised that I didn't want to have these divisions with these other people. I didn't want to. It didn't have any meaning for them to be the other or that I could criticise them so sharply and I didn't want to play that game anymore. Um, Politics is a very toxic environment, very adversary. It brought out the worst in me. Now, I don't need to be encouraged to be aggressive, but I tell you what, it was very much encouraged. And so that fell away as well and I ended up, to the great surprise of a lot of my friends, uh, resigning uh, from that job. And a lot of my friends were like, Donna, you've been you know, you've been part of this for so long and, you know, we're ready to support you in your pre-selection. And, and, you know, they were almost (laughs) confronted by it and saying, you can't do this, you can't walk away. This is what you've always wanted to do. It's who you've always wanted to be. It's who you are. And so I had to deal with those expectations as well of what people were projecting onto me. But I'd been able to let it go 
And so I was in this in-betweenness of asking that question, well, then who am I now? And what I did, I resigned from my job and I, I printed up business cards. And on the business card, it simply read, Donna Mulhern, Pilgrim and Storyteller. And then I embarked on a pilgrimage to go deeper into my contemplative teaching and the contemplative teaching of other traditions. The words, when you lose your life, you find it. I felt that immensely. I really felt that because I was losing all of that and who I thought I was. And, but at the same time, I was finding something new and I didn't know. I, I didn't know where I would end up. I didn't know where my next scent would come from. But I felt exhilarated. I, I felt this great sense of freedom and liberation. And thus the journey began and I went on to a pilgrimage and that was basically where I went deeper into the teaching of non-violence thanks to Father Lawrence Freeman and the Christian meditation community. And within nine months of leaving my job, I was, uh, I was in Baghdad. So it was a good decision to make to let go of that um, world of politics. Okay, so Donna, it, it sounds like... Um kind of the consistent theme here is that there's certainly a, a change, a transition that you underwent. Um, and so in your, your pilgrimage, and, and this might be a matter of, of elaborating on some of the things that you've touched on so far, but um, in your pilgrimage into peacemaking, into nonviolence that, that you just discussed, um, is there a, a main theme or a framework that animates your peace practice and, and your activism that you could pass along to us, a kind of, um, I guess, overarching or general philosophy that you could share with us um, that you think might be helpful? I guess it goes back to the little um, monastery, little nunnery in uh, Ireland and what happened to me there. And it was the first time that I um, slowed down and and was still and and so a lot of a lot of things were able to, to happen there and one of those things was um did the discovery of a contemplative prayer christian meditation and in in that place i realized in that stillness in that silence i was able to just be who i am Mm -hmm. and therefore fully human. And as a, and to, to just feel that and be that, fully human. And I mean fully human as opposed to all those other labels that have been put onto us and me all those years prior. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're a consumer, you're a citizen, or in my case, you're a voter, you're this, you're that but just to be, and John Mayne says, in meditation, you know who you are yeah. because you are who you are. Hmm. To feel that is transformative. Yes. And for me, perhaps feeling it for the first time in a very real and deep way, the fully human, and to realise to be fully human is to, our natural capacity is to have love and compassion for others. It's our natural state, to, to be in our natural state. Well, we're not in that state. It's because it's been knocked out of us hmm. by, by other influences. So we need to continually resist those other influences and come back to that um, uh, state of being fully human. 
And when you recognize that humanity within yourself and come to know it, you then recognize it in others, in everybody else more fully. And so I feel that, felt that gut connection. And also you recognize there is that of God in everyone and the spark of the divine in everyone because I've just, I just discovered it within myself and, and able to connect to that. Then you recognize it within others. And so that inevitably uh, leads you to seeing others in, in a different way and feeling a love for other people, regardless of what country they come from, what religion they are, what name they are. You just come to love and respect them. And so it makes it impossible to say, I don't know, bomb their countries or, you know, turn them away when they're seeking asylum. It makes that impossible. And so my work in um, peacemaking and nonviolence would go back to this foundation, to the foundation of the common humanity that I feel with others, that other people are my um, brothers and sisters, and that um, working for peace and justice is just a natural thing to do alongside your brothers and sisters. So I think that would probably be the foundation that I that I work from. It used to be that my activism had come from a place of ideology, of a place of thinking every the world's unfair, of I have to put things right. Mm-hmm. That that's not sustainable and that makes you quite tired. Mm-hmm. Now my activism comes from simply from a place of love. Mm. That's it. Mm-hmm. A place of love. Now that is more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In the long term. Yeah. And and so it sounds like um you know if I'm hearing you correctly there there seems to be this sense of a I guess a an understanding that in our more immature years we're almost building up a a persona layers of false self from from external pressures and influences and what you're describing is is trying to find the true self deep down um, by peeling back the layers that have been up until then suffocating that true self but it takes a maturity it takes a later season of your life in order to do that because you're 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 not really cognizant of of these influences and pressures the layers of persona um, the expectations on you that are suffocating the true self and so later you 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 uh, are a little bit more attentive to that um, but I, I wonder if if maybe you could um, even describe for us um, some of the spiritual or contemplative um, or ascetic disciplines and exercises that you practice. Um, you, you mentioned a little bit the prayer of the heart, um, but some of them that you, you practice to, to sustain you um, in your peace work and in your activism. Yes, yeah, so I would say that my main spiritual discipline is, um, is Christian meditation. And then I have, a, I guess, a little collection of contemplative um, practices that I um, delve uh, in an in and out of. So yeah, the main my main practice, contemplative practice, is, is meditation, and I do that in the tradition of the World Community for Christian Meditation, founded by um, uh, John Main, and our director is Father Lawrence Freeman. And so that was what um, the practice was from the from the beginning for me. And that's a simple practice. It's it's a physical silence. 
and a physical stillness. But then the next step is to enter into a quietening of the mind. And that's the challenge. That's the hardest part of the whole thing, Mm -hmm. of course, because our minds are racing uh, constantly and distracted constantly. And so the way that we do this in our tradition is um, simply the repetition of a word interiorly, a prayer word, a mantra. And this practice dates back a couple of thousand years to the early desert fathers and mothers, of course. And so we're just drawing on that ancient practice of a word or the formula or the prayer word, um, similar to what the um, Orthodox community would use the Jesus prayer, how they would use the Jesus prayer. And so... Uh, I aim to make that a daily practice twice a day. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I would say is my contemplative, my spiritual discipline. Mm-hmm. The other contemplative practices that I love to use as well is um, I love the concept of pilgrimage. And it's really important um, for me, the, the sense of being on a journey and that openness of a pilgrimage, of a being a pilgrim. And so I do embark regularly on little pilgrimages myself as well as bigger pilgrimages in different places around the world. But I also love to bring down the concept of pilgrimage into a smaller microcosm, and that is walking labyrinths. And so I love um, the symbolism of walking labyrinth uh, as a little pilgrimage to the centre, to our centre. Mm-hmm. And so I, I seek out labyrinths where I go, but also here where I live in the Blue Mountains, we've created a small retreat centre, and we have three uh, different labyrinths here uh, for walking meditation uh, set in the bush and so that's um, that's another thing that I love to do um, the other thing that I did was um, I remember a few years ago just before my um, uh, last trip to Iraq I knew it was going to be quite a stressful and uh, very difficult and confronting time so I knew that I had to prepare for it and so I went and bought uh, a harp uh, mm-hmm. a Celtic folk harp mm-hmm. now at this point, I didn't know how to play the harp, <laughs> but I, it was my gift to myself because I knew that year was just going to be really, really hard and I was trying to mm-hmm. plan ahead. And so I sat with this beautiful handcrafted wooden Celtic harp. I spent the first couple of days just looking, admiring it because it's so beautiful. And then um, I had to teach myself to play it. And what do you do? You go to YouTube and find someone <laughs> to teach you. And so someone was there. God bless all these people who go to YouTube to teach us things. And so I, and I found a teacher and I started playing the harp uh, as a beginner. And the great thing about the harp, I always say to people, you've got to be very clever to play the harp because um, while you're playing one bar, you need to place your hands on the, the strings for the next one. So you need to be looking ahead constantly. But the main thing about it is that if you are not paying attention, if you're not fully committed and present to it, you basically can't play. Hmm. And so it's, a, it's an excellent contemplative practice. And so that's one that I love as well. It just, hmm. I am so in the moment when I'm playing the harp. A lot, a lot of time can pass by really quickly hmm. because you are at attention. Because that's, what are we doing in contemplation? We are paying attention. We are attentive. We are present. Mm -hmm. And so that's one that I love as well. And one more I'll just say is I do live in this beautiful place and I think beauty is really important. Like my partner works um, uh, in Afghanistan. He goes to Afghanistan every year, does a lot of work there. I've been involved in different things in Iraq and others. But when we come back, we 
we've chosen intentionally to live in a beautiful place in order that we can recover yeah. and um, and heal. Yeah. And so um, we have, my partner bought me for a birthday a couple of years ago, uh, a peacock, <laughs> an Indian blue uh, peacock, best birthday present ever. And <laughs> this peacock just shines with this iridescent blue. He opens up his train with these huge meter-long feathers that are iridescent pink and shining and they're just so beautiful. And he struts around and he displays his train. And I just tell you what, he does it every day and I see it every day, but every day I'm entranced. Mm. Every day I'm enchanted by this beauty and I just sit and stare at him. So I call that my peacock meditations. Mm. <laughs> well, I just admire the, that beauty. And for me, that is also a really deeply nourishing contemplative practice mm. because then I head inside and continue on with my writing or whatever project I'm doing. So... That for me is just a few practices, the, the music of the harp, the beauty of nature and walking the labyrinth and all based on my main discipline, which is where the work done, that real inner work is done and that is in um, contemplative prayer and Christian yeah. meditation. Donna, I'm, I'm very aware that for, you know, it's that Aussie thing that we do that we don't really tell talk about ourselves as, as Australians much. Um, and I guess, uh, Andrew, Canadians are somewhat the same, but you start sentences with sorry. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm aware that all your talk about these practices um, uh, aren't a nice kind of extra or way to um, uh, draw out more enjoyment out of life for you but you have a number of sections in um, Ordinary Courage where the, the scene that I remember in particular is you talk about um, whether you're going to throw up or pass out because you're in a marketplace and uh, there is fruit everywhere and there is bits of human flesh um, over the goods of the market um, and these practices that you're you're talking about, and when you talk about um, burnout and activist burnout, and um, it, it's also the reality of um, how post-traumatic stress disorder is a very real reality for many people in activist circles. The deeper you go, and and to add to that, the isolation that many people feel um, when uh, if it's because of their own unknown guilt or shame that they project that maybe I should be involved or maybe like um, and so there's a, a confounding isolation that happens uh, with that as well um, you talk in ordinary courage also about the reality of being kidnapped and um, uh, those those kind of realities when when you teach on contemplative prayer particularly to people, whether it's because of activism or just because of uh, how difficult life is for so many people, what do you think are the greatest challenges to being a peacemaker? What do you think are the things that um, make it so easy to give up on this journey of contemplative peacemaking? I think one of the challenges is probably um, 
despair. Yeah. And uh, feeling overwhelmed and not knowing what to do and letting that affect then our, our decisions uh, on a daily basis. Um, we often hear the phrase, bending around, you know, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I, isn't there a shame? We watch it on the news, oh, there's no shame, there's nothing I can do. You know, the direct result of that statement, there's nothing I can do, is we do nothing. And so sometimes, you know, we've got to be careful of, of, of this. Despair can be a luxury sometimes, just something. Yeah. It can trick us, you know, it can really trick us. So we've got to be really careful about that. Um, but then again... It's like that Dorothy Day quote, no one has the right to feel hopeless, there's too much work to do. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Although you're about to say that the other side of that, though, is um, to not be in denial of the of despair as well, and just yeah. get up every day, bang, bang, bang. You know, I've got to do this, got to do this. But you know, without you know, for example, resting and just getting into a state of exhaustion, because then you're of no help to anybody, particularly if you're cranky all the time or just need to have rest. So. Um, you know, if, if you're exhausted, don't give up, take a rest, you know, yeah. and don't be too proud to take a rest. So I think it's really good to acknowledge despair and feeling overwhelmed and grief. Feel the grief. Allow yourself to feel the grief. Yeah. Um, I, I see activists always trying to keep um, s strong or, or inverted commas brave and it's like, how could, how could you do that? And a lot of a question I've got a lot over the years is, oh, I can't believe, I don't know how you cope. I don't know how you cope with seeing this and doing that. I'm like, what do you mean cope? Because if you think I always hold it together, then you'd be, you'd be mistaken, you know. <laughs> the way that I, inverted commas, can cope or continue on, which is I think is what they meant, is that, I, you know, if I'm in Fallujah, the city of Fallujah, I spend a lot of time in the hospital wards there with women, mothers, sitting with them while their babies are dying. I then go back to my room and before I start my work, which is telling their stories, is the work I do to try to humanise these people, give them names and faces, is I cry for a very long time, you know. Yeah. I, I cry and I grieve before I begin to do the work. I don't pretend to be brave, I don't like that word at all, I feel, feel that grief and don't be in denial about the, the hurt and the pain and the suffering that we feel. There's something I love about the Christian story and the Christian teaching is that weakness and vulnerability has such an important role. Mm. Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I really love it that we, from brokenness, mm. you know, there's nothing more powerful than a broken heart, you know, what that could lead to. And to to have a soft heart and a supple supple heart is a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I really like that. That with invulnerability, you know, my power is made stronger in your weakness. I felt that, you know. Mm -hmm. So I I really like that. So I think we need to remember that within our story, we do have this um, tradition of you know, rawness and vulnerability from Jesus, our teacher, living that way and he, you know, Jesus living as a contemplative and Jesus living as an activist and a contemplative. I love looking at that model of how did he do it? 
Well, he, yeah. he went away a lot. He withdrew and he went on retreat and he looked after himself. But um, he, he went into times of that presentness um, with God, that union. And I, I love that model. I think it's a really powerful model. And I think, you know, in many places in the Christian tradition, that's been lost because people are so frenetically in, engaged in this active work um, that they've missed the, the message of Jesus the contemplative. If Jesus was anything, he was a teacher of nonviolence and a teacher of contemplation. And I believe the way he taught those two things was very much linked as well. Yeah. So I think we've got a lot to reclaim in that contemplative tradition that um, enables us to continue um, in our work um, as, as activists. And Donna, I, I think that's one of the most incredible things uh, I talked to the start about the, the Donnas that I have known and you becoming more Donna. It's particularly the last couple of years for me so encouraging um, like after years of being in actions together and being arrested together and journeying together and your commitment to this path, how things that for many people, whether it be activism and prayer or whether it be contemplation and nonviolence, that um, this journey that you've been on, uh, it is a journey of integration. And the things that um, even theologically we separate that in in the silence of prayer and the nakedness of, of prayer, the cross and resurrection are one reality, not two. And what it is to come face to face with at the centre of our faith is this suffering love, which is victorious, but the victory doesn't cancel out the suffering. Um, mm. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I'm so pleased that we've got you on the show and so early um, in the podcast is because uh, the, the fact that you're still here, um, that you're still kind, um, that you're um, you're doing what you do in the way that you do it is a living testimony to the power of contemplative peacemaking. So um, we're just appreciative for the time. Mm -hmm. Well, I certainly try for the integration. Of course, you don't always succeed, but that's yeah. okay, you know. <laughs> Because, and sometimes I look at my harp and it's just here right next to me now and I look at it and it's been, it's been a, a couple of weeks since I've played it. Why do we do that? Why do we do that to ourselves when we know it's helpful, when we know it's good for us but we don't do it? And so we have, we're up and down in our lives of contemplation and action and the integration of the two. But you know what? We're in good company. We're in good yeah. company. St Francis of Assisi, you know, of all people, had this constant tension, you know, the, to be in his hermitage and in deep prayer, which he loved to do, but also, of course, loved to be out there with the people, with the poor and doing that, that work of one-on-one. -on -one. And he just had this constant struggle to the point where he went to his, who he considered his elders and teachers and said, I, I don't know what to do. Would you please tell me, should I stay in the hermitage and just be this man of prayer or should I be with the people and, and be doing that more often? He, he needed guidance. He said, will you please give me this advice? And so he's, um, the two people he asked went away. They came back a few days later. And they both had the same answer and they said, Francis, you are to be uh, a man of prayer and you are to be in your hermitage and, 
and um, and in prayer. Went okay, he said, and you are to be with the people, and you are to be, you know, with the poor, and you are continued. To, it was all like there there was no division between the two. Yeah. You are you are to do both, and um, I. I love that St. Francis uh, is, a, is a model for that, for that struggle and, and that tension. Mm. Yeah, but it is, it is a struggle and it is a journey, but if, if, that's, you know, if that's my tension, then I'm, I'm okay with that and okay with just trying to work that out day to day, uh, week to week. And um, we also have, of course, the lovely Mary Martha parable as well that, mm. that speaks to us. You know, so that parable has been taught in the past as, it's almost like Mary and Martha are two different personality types. Like you're a Martha type and you're a Mary type, which I think does it a grave injustice. Yeah. And um, yeah. and if that's not a parable for today, I don't know what is. You know, Martha in the kitchen, overwhelmed and stressed by getting the tea ready for her guests who have just landed on her doorstep. Um, and G- and then her bursting into the room, and I love this as a woman, the only one of Jesus' followers to tell him what to do is this woman. She comes in, interrupts them. Excuse me, Jesus. You know, at home, you may not have noticed. You know, I'm in the kitchen doing all the work. Tell my sister to help me. Come on, tell her. And um, Jesus' response to that, you know, he could have been annoyed. He might have been in the middle of a great story, a parable. He might have been at the punchline, you know, and, and <laughs> rudely interrupts. He could have been annoyed, but he wasn't. And he, he, she was a friend of his. and. He looked at her, uh, I imagine, and that he said her name, Martha, and it's recorded that he repeats it, Martha, Martha, as if reminding her who she is and calling her to herself. And then, yeah. and then he did what any good friend would do, and he holds a mirror up to her, and he said he he names what happened, what was going on. He just identifies. He says, "You are distracted by your many tasks." Huh. Yeah. And it's basically and that has made you irritated, frustrated, and then identifying that what Mary was doing, though sitting, listening, being still, was also good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary has chosen the other path and won't be taken from her, and and so to see that parable as. Um, for, for a start, you know, how is that so relevant? You are distracted by your many tasks. Tasks, you know, isn't that the story of, of all of us? But to maybe think of bringing those two aspects of all of us, because I, I think that the Mary and Martha runs through all of us, and that the challenge of this story is bringing them into into harmony. Bring him into yeah. a, into a balance and and, a, and an integration, and um, perhaps the being before doing, um, oh. balancing the being and the doing. But what uh, certainly Jesus didn't say that what Mary was doing wasn't good because somebody has to make the tea, mm-hmm. you know, somebody <laughs> has to do that. Mm-hmm. But to to do it in a sense um, of peace uh, oh. and, and calm. And if that's how we can do our work, then that's a good thing. And, and almost two forms of hospitality in a sense, right? Um, and, and so there's a unity even in that concept. Um, 
and I, and I love the way that you've zeroed in on the vulnerability of the Christian story of the gospel, the vulnerability and the, the, the self emptying, uh, like a, a, a canonic activism in a sense. Yes. And I think that you can see a, a unifying thread even there. Um, but since the embrace of, of nonviolence, um, it's, you know, I'm sure, as you know, it's often a, a tough sell with, uh, people who are so accustomed to trying to, um, resolve our problems using state military means um, and things like that, using violence. I'd, I'd like to know if you have uh, maybe a, a recent idea related to peacemaking, related to nonviolence, that really helped you think more clearly about these things. Um, what we're looking for is, is you know, a, a, a kind of an aha moment or a pivotal thought from our guests, um, something that really clicked for you. Um, that might help convince others to embrace nonviolence more emphatically um, that you could share with us? Well, an aha moment that I've had in relation to social justice in general and activism in general mm -hmm. has come as I've been thinking about the question of what contemplative activism looks like. Mm -hmm. you know, what, what, what does that look like as opposed to other types of activism? Yeah. And I love um, a quote from... Um, one of the our ministers here, and he works with the homeless homeless people in in a Sydney at the Wayside Chapel, Graham Long. Hmm. What he what he says very practical guy, but he says um, he sees the people he works with not as a problem to be solved, but as a person to be met. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And that I I've been thinking a lot about that. Yeah. and extrapolating that out to bigger questions and bigger issues. What does that look like in a bigger picture way? And so in terms of peacemaking, social justice, nonviolence, I've been thinking about this whole concept of present presence and attention and the greatest gift of love that we can give to another human being today is to give them our attention. Hmm. More so now than ever before. Yeah. It's such a precious thing yeah. <laughs> to give someone your attention. I know that when my partner gives it to me for three minutes, I'm very grateful. <laughs> and I hope that I can do the same for him. Yeah. But um, what Graham identified as seeing issues, um, not as issues, but to think about um, the people, um, involved in that and presentness to that. If I can just give a, um, a little story that um, from when I was in Iraq, my first trip, that mm -hmm. gave me the lesson. I was walking through um, with a whole bunch of other uh, human shields who were in Baghdad, the hospital wards there, and the, the doctors were showing us these wards full of children who were dying of leukaemia and cancers. And it was just quite overwhelming. It was three or four to a bed. There was mattresses on the floor. And he brought us to the bed of this young girl. Um, her mouth was open. There was dry blood in her mouth. Her, her face was grey. She had a needle hanging out of her arm, but her eyes were open and she was looking at us. And he told her she will die in a few days. Of course, the reason for her death is because of the bad luck of where she was born in the south of Iraq. And um, she's been impacted by 
the toxic environment there caused by the use of depleted uranium weapons used in the first Gulf War. And so I'm at the end of her bed, horrified by this feeling that I'm involved, I'm connected to her death in some way because my country was there in that war and we imposed those sanctions, which meant she couldn't get medical care. I just wept and wept and cried and her father got me a chair, her mother held my hand and I sat by that bed and all I was thinking is what can I do, what can I do, what can I do? I've got to do something to help now. I've got to help this situation. And I was then cursing myself because I thought, oh, right in this moment I need to either be a doctor or a scientist to be able to help this situation and I'm neither and I you know, put my, my hand against my head. What were you thinking, Donna, when you decided to be a journalist at the end of year 12? Yeah, that's really helpful, isn't it? You know, great. You know, you're really useful, aren't you? Great. And I'm sitting here just completely and cry, continuing to cry and thinking about who I'm not and what I need to do. Meanwhile, this girl is sitting there in the bed looking at me hmm. and she, she does an amazing thing. She leans over towards me and she tries to speak, um, but the blood in her mouth uh, doesn't enable her to get any words out, this lump of dry blood. And so she winces in pain as she tries to put some words and she can't get the words out. But she does another thing. She reaches out her hand, a bloated hand, and she squeezes my arm because she really wants to tell me something. And I don't know, I guess to this day, what she wanted to tell me exactly, but I felt from the energy coming from her. And she looked right into my eyes and I felt like she was saying, hey, 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 come on, hello, you know? As if to say, I've, I've been sitting here a while now while you've been crying and having a little pity party thinking about yourself, you know? And, you know, crying, and you know, it's not helping, not helping, you know? That's not helping this situation. And, and I realised she was just simply calling me into the one thing that I could have given her, and that was my presence mm. and my attention. That's all she wanted, and that would have been the most helpful thing at that time, and yet I was thinking of how I could solve this problem in the next 10 years and how I need to go and retrain as a medic, and I just needed to be present to her. Mm. And I see that response would have been a more contemplative response. And that taught me a big lesson. And she was inviting me just to be who I am. She invited me just to be who I was with her. And um, it, was, it was a beautiful lesson. And it's one that now I try to think about that when there's issues that seem overwhelming. And advice I would give um, to activists who are feeling burnt out, especially activists who are doing jobs at a desk that involve some kind of policy or advocacy, and that is I would really encourage them to try to weave into their work, if it's especially if it's in an office at a desk, encounters with the people that you're trying to help, personal yeah. encounters. I just believe that that's so important in helping to sustain that that journey, um, that presentness and that energy and that, that interaction of love, um, to be able to express that love um, is, is really, really important. 
So I guess, yeah, that in terms of a moment, aha moment, that Graham Long quote just got me back to thinking about it, that you know, people, they're not an issue to be solved but a person to be met. What does that look like? on a personal level and on a broader level. So uh, that's just something I've been, mm, I've been thinking great. about. Yeah. Mm. yeah and, and really helpful. When Andrew was talking at the start around uh, stripping back and that experience of, of um, prayer is something that pulls back those layers, pulls back those layers. And even in that story that uh, the powerlessness uh, that we're called to in prayer and yet, there is a paradox, there is a power, but it's not the kind of power we're looking for to fix something, but it's a power to be present to that we can't actually control, we don't have power over. And the simple mm -hmm. gift of that little girl being present to you and you being present to her, and to go back to Mary and Martha, um, uh, sometimes we can treat that story in such archetypal ways that we forget the um, the concrete social realities of expectations because of um, gender and culture and all the rest and the fact that Mary is sitting at Jesus's feet as a woman. Um, mm. uh, rabbis at the time said it, it is better for uh, your daughter to become a prostitute for, than for them to learn Torah because in the hands of a woman who knows what they'll do and yet sitting at the feet with the other disciples in an equal position Mary has had these false identities stripped back um, mm -hmm. where she can see herself as someone worthy to just sit with Jesus. Like um, as Brian Zand, his favourite definition of contemplative prayer is, is sitting with Jesus. But it, it's hard, like all the, those cultural expectations, particularly as activists, um, to be effective and useful and not waste and the the journey of realizing how much, quote unquote, if we're going to use that term, privilege. Um, so, and when we see people and live with people in such desperate situations, how difficult it can be to, to not feel immense pressure upon ourselves. Uh, as you've been on this journey for, for years and years now, for, for those of us who feel pretty crappy at contemplation and, um, uh, pretty poor at peacemaking. Uh, are there gentle words of wisdom that you would offer? Um, I know so many people are like, yeah, I did try contemplative prayer for a while, but um, for, for those who find the silence um, so difficult, what, what encouragement would you offer? Remember, our contemplative spirituality is, is a, it's a call and an invitation. The call that I had to go to that um, nunnery in Ireland was a headline I saw in a newspaper when I was on the streets of Dublin looking for somewhere to do some volunteer work in Dublin because I needed to make up for all those hours I was wasting sitting in cathedrals in Paris. <laughs> I felt... I felt bad about that. I was like, oh, my God, what were you thinking? What were you doing? What was that? What did that mean? Oh, my God, let's get over it. Forget it ever happened. So I started looking for some places to go and do volunteer work, and I got a copy Which of... Which is a fascinating thing to actually name, isn't it, Donna? The shame of wasting time yes. in silence. Like, it's not even petitionary <laughs> yeah. prayer. Like, well, how is this a good use of... Yeah. Um, yeah. And to actually name that 
the feelings of guilt and shame can arise from just sitting with Jesus. <laughs> Absolutely. And so here I am feeling those, picking up a, a copy. And it was a Catholic weekly. And as I said, I was coming back into the Catholic fold then. And, and so I, I was look. there was um, nursing homes and I was ringing, hi, I'm Donna. Can I come and volunteer at your place? I can be there tomorrow, you know. Uh, no, thanks. We don't need anyone. Hi, rang the next place. Hi, a, a soup kitchen. I, I can come this afternoon and help you. Uh, no, thanks. We don't need anybody. And at the end of this page that I'd ripped out of the Catholic Quickly, and I still have this piece of paper, and I have the, the these other ads crossed out as they were all kind of declining my offers, my enthusiasm. The last ad at the bottom of the page, the headline of it was, come away to a quiet place and rest a while. And I stood there on the streets of Dublin and I looked up at the sky because that's where I thought God lived back then. And I, I said, okay, I get the message. I, I, I get the message and I, I felt like I was saying, Donna, just sit down, shut up, you know, come hang out with me. I felt this real drawing. This is an invitation to you. Um, just, just come hang out and let me answer the prayer of Notre Dame. Let me answer it. You asked for it. Let me answer. In, in wow. order to answer, I needed to, to, to stop and allow that answering of my prayer. So then I went to the phone box and called the number. Hi, I'd like to come away to a quiet place and rest a while. And, you know, the answer, get on the next train to Cork, up the hill to Cove, you know. And I booked, I, I booked into this Benedictine monastery not knowing what a Benedictine was, but I'd been drawn there. And so I would say to people, this is an invitation that's been given to you. Come away. Come away to a quiet place and rest a while. This is the way that Jesus was able to do his work in the world. Um, Jesus lived as a contemplative. He lived as a mystic. Before he began his work and his ministry, he was first in that place of uh, at, at the baptism of you are my beloved son in whom I am pleased. And his first position was feeling loved and accepted yeah. before embarking on the work and therefore getting brownie points for the work. It was not required because the first position was I am loved, yeah. the beloved. And one of the most amazing things that happened to me when I sat still, was able to just be, was what was the most overwhelming feeling was the feeling of being completely and utterly loved. And when you feel that, every again, everything changes, you know. Mm -hmm. Nothing is the same. And when you feel a connection, you know, before then the words, the kingdom of God within you was just the words, the kingdom of God. But to feel that as a, a reality and just to quote my favourite, the, the thing that made the penny drop for me, uh, in that time was a quote from St. Augustine, and it was, um, O beauty ever ancient, ever new, so late have I loved you, but I was outside and you were within me, and I never found you until I found you within myself. Um, it was a more a kaboom than a aha, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You see, 
you know, as Richard Rawls says, the way you see one thing is the way you see everything. When you see yourself in a, a different way, completely and utterly loved, then you see everybody else and, and everything in a different way as well. Mm-hmm. I would invite people who struggle to accept this beautiful invitation that's been given to them. Don't feel, as you say, don't feel ashamed or embarrassed to accept the invitation to come away and be in a quiet place and rest. Embrace it. Jesus lived that model. He lived that way. And we should feel um, very much able to do that, to, to live that way as well and yeah. to model as well. And, and, and don't feel guilty, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Which is the, the main theme of, of Merton's conjectures of, yeah. of a guilty bystander. Absolutely. Um, on the contrary, on the contrary, I believe that to be the best activist that we can be, the best peacemaker, I would say it's essential to mm-hmm. be spending time uh, in with contemplative practices mm-hmm. to keep us anchored in that place of love so that our the work we do comes from that motivation and not from somewhere else. So I would say it's not a negotiable, it's an essential for our 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 physical work to really be nourishing and nurturing constantly our inner life and our inner journey because that's where the hard work is done. And we know it, the favourite quote from our one of our favourite teachers, Richard Raw, and I'm so jealous of you, uh, Jared, that you got to meet him, but... Um, what we don't transform, we transmit. So when we work in difficult places and with people who have lived traumatic lives, we abs- and, and with nonviolence in particular, and this was difficult for me when I was in Israel, Palestine and in Iraq, to absorb the violence around you and say, the pain stops here. Well, I will not be part of letting this cycle continue. It's going to stop here. Hmm. I'm absorbing this and I'm not letting it out, that violence out again. Easier said than done, of course. (laughs) How on on earth do we do that? But that is inner work and it is the work of contemplation to transform within us that violence and um, trauma and angst and hatred to absorb that and to transform it, that's hard inner work. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's the work of the heart. And we support the work of the heart with the prayer of the heart. Mm-hmm. And it stops there, of course, much like with Christ, where he absorbed the violence of others. And at that time, he's, he's resurrected three days and has an opportunity to go back and seek revenge. Right, he has that opportunity, and he doesn't. What he does is he lifts humanity to heaven at his ascension. Um, Absolutely, from which flows mercy and compassion. Absolutely, yeah. and and so that's why I would urge activists to really take seriously this invitation and call they've been given to 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 a contemplative spirituality. Mm-hmm. The other um, reason I would urge them to to give it a try or to to stick at it is because it really helps us to find, I believe, our place 
in the work of peace and justice in the world because there's just so many issues and so many um, problems. It's almost like where do we start? And and this, because the great thing about contemplation, it leads very much to self-knowledge and that's really important for, for all of us. And I remember I was at a school once and a, a young boy put up his hand at the end of a talk I was giving about what's happening in Iraq. And he said, miss, and about making a difference in the world. He said, miss, I want to make a difference in the world too. He said, but I don't know if I could go overseas to another country where there's a war and do this sort of thing. That you go, I don't think I could do that. And I looked at him and went, really? You don't think you could do that? Went, no, I'm quite sure. I said, oh, that's fantastic. He said, what? And I said, you know yourself that well that already you're what sixteen. You know that that's not not up your not what you could do. I said I bet if I asked you, you could tell me um, three things that you're really good at. Could you could you do that? He rattled them off immediately. He said sure. And I said, well that's great, fantastic. I said because there's three things that you just said I can't do, and eighty percent of this room can't do them either. And I said I'm not going to rouse at you if. You don't go over and do this, that work or that work. I said, but I will rouse on you if you don't take the time to know who you are and be that because that's what we need in the world, not everybody doing the same thing on the same issue at the same time. Hmm. And so when activists say to me, oh, Donna, I'd like to, I'm talking about you know younger teenage kids, oh, I'd like to do something, where do I start? I think they think, they expect me to, give advice like, oh, join this organisation or go to the next protest or go and do this. And it's not what I say. And I think they might be a little bit disappointed by my answer sometimes because it's not a sexy answer. It's, I say to them, when do you think you can get some time on your own? Is there a chance that you could go away from from home for a day and, and, and go to a place by yourself? And they're like a bit confused by that because what I'm inviting them to do is to take that time out to be just who they are, peel off those layers upon them. And at that age, you've got those layers coming on you from the age of when does advertising start to aim them? Three, three years old. Mm -hmm. Take a chance to peel off those layers, know better who you are. And that's, I would say, can be your first step in activism is to go away and experience the silence and stillness and solitude and the power of that and what that will bring to you, I believe, would be the first very helpful step. Hmm. So that's why I would urge activists really do stick at it and to really continue. And everybody says, oh, I can't do silent meditation um, because my mind is too busy. I'm like, well, you're not alone. We're all, we're all, we all struggle. We all struggle. Welcome to the club. <laughs> exactly. We all struggle with that. We all struggle with that. But even if we just expo- experience a few moments of that stillness and just being because what we're doing in in contemplative prayer we're just simply paying attention again contemplative prayer is an act of love we are paying attention to the one who is paying attention to us we are returning the gaze the gaze of love so mm-hmm. contemplation it's it's pe- prayer it's just pure prayer you know um, said of course and you know pray without ceasing and when he said pray without ceasing, I'm quite sure he didn't mean can 24 hours a day walk around talking all the time verbally and don't stop. <laughs> you know, I'm quite sure he didn't mean that. So he obviously meant something else. And that is this prayer within. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
Hey, thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe on either iTunes, SoundCloud, or our website, irpj.org backslash podcast, and encourage others to do the same. And follow myself and Jared on Twitter and Facebook. And if you want more information on Donna and her work, please visit bluelabyrinth.com.au and be sure to also check out Jared's contemplative activist workshops with YWAM in Kona, Hawaii at the end of this month as well. And since the Parasan podcast is a production of the Institute for Religion, Peace and Justice at St. Stephen's University, I also encourage folks to check out our eight-month entirely online six-course university accredited certificate in religion peace and justice that has courses on the inner transformation of a peacemaker peace theology and social justice practical peace building and nonviolence, the factor of religion in peace and conflict and peace and violence in the old and new testaments and so listeners can find out more information about this at irpj.org backslash certificate and be sure to follow irpj on twitter and facebook as well